Everybody's doing good tonight? Wednesday evening. And uh, what a privilege, what, what a huge privilege it, it is to, that I, to be asked to be able to do, to do this tonight. Um, some of you may know me, I'm Blake Formanic. Uh, I'm uh, working on my bachelor's degree at the Florida Bible College here at Tampa, and I attend Calvary Community Church as well. And, uh, well, I wanted to treat this as a, uh, kind of like a Bible study tonight. Um, I'm going to be reteaching something that I had organized uh, back in April, and I have since then made some revisions to smooth it out as well. But uh, what I'm going to read from tonight, you're going to be having a, a handout copy as well, so you can thoroughly follow along with me as well as with your Bibles, as we'll be flipping some pages and going through some scriptures as well. Uh, but today, what we're going to be looking at is the Spring Feast of Israel, and specifically how they tie into Messianic fulfillment. So we have the Spring Feast of Israel. There's also Fall Feast of Israel. There's four Spring Feasts of Israel, and there's three Fall Feasts of Israel. In total year-round, that's seven feasts. Today we're going to be focusing specifically on, as it's relative to the time of year we're in, is, is the Spring Feast. Uh, or at least relative to the time that I had organized this. Uh, with the time that we have today, we'll probably get through the first two because there's, uh, there's just so much gold here and just so much to, to look at. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, we were, we were in Israel back in February, and it was a little early to, to see Passover and some of those, uh, see the, the Israelites celebrating these fall feasts. Um, but it was still an amazing trip, and it was amazing to take in the culture and see God's people in the land and see just these promises that 4,000 years ago were made are still, you, you see it, and there's so much more to, to be accomplished, but you, you see the people in the land, and uh, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It all rings back to Genesis chapter 12, where you'll find the first chapter of your handout, um, and I'm just... We're not going to go to the scripture specifically right now, but I'm just going to, as you're following on your handout, Genesis 12, God selects a man named Abraham. Promises are given to him, such as the land, the land that we were, we were in when we went on the trip, as well as a great nation that would come from him uh, genealogically, biologically. Uh, also worth noting, as well as... Uh, Abraham is a basis for actually a lot of faiths globally, um, of course, Judaism, and what we believe in, in Christianity uh, through Christ, and as well as also the Islamic population will still trace their uh, faith back to Abraham. Well, what you can do now is go into your Bibles, and you can meet me in Genesis chapter 14, so you can either the Bible the Bible that you brought with you, or a church loan Bible in the pew in front of you, and go to Genesis chapter 14. So I have some pages flipping. Genesis chapter 14, and we're going to start uh, specifically in verse 18. So Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. And I'll read along verbatim. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. If it's your own Bible, I, I would recommend, for the case of the study tonight, underlining bread and the term priest of the Most High God. 
this will all tie in when we talk about uh, how the, the connection between Melchizedek and, and Jesus Christ. Verse 19 goes on to say, And he, speaking of Melchizedek, blessed him, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. In parentheses, I made some reminders that, uh, for emphasis is that throughout the study, I want, we're going to go back to Melchizedek, and I want you to remember this individual, Melchizedek. He's very important as far as the feasts are concerned and the priestly aspect that we're going to be looking at tonight. Um, in Asterix, I put that the one who blesses is greater, and the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament uh, as well goes into more depth into this. But the one who blesses is typically, in almost all instances, the greater of the two. So Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek, so Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek. So all of his descendants are inferior to Melchizedek, the king-priest. That's something going to be very important to understand. Anybody who comes from Abraham is inferior, is less than, this, uh, you could say the spiritual hierarchy of the figure Melchizedek. So in Genesis 15, I'm just going to make some brief mentions. Uh, you don't have to turn there, although it's probably just right, just a few lines down on the page. In verse 1, the term I am is, first, is the first time in the Bible when I am is introduced. God, it's a designated title for God. The self-existing one, as I have in quotations. We see this later in Exodus chapter 3 when God approaches and commissions Moses. It's the same God. It's the same identity. It's the same I am. What's cool about that is that in the New Testament, I am comes up a lot, especially from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Uh, John, I believe, has at least seven uh, places, or at least seven I am statements that Jesus makes. Same God, same person, same, same identity, only in the flesh. Moving down to verse 4 and 5, Abraham receives a seed blessing from God. So I pose a question to the audiences, who is Abraham's seed? Well, he, yep, he, he had two. He had Ishmael, and then he had Isaac. Yep. Well, we move on a generation later, and this is just, again, this is a brief overview of Genesis, and then we're going to get into some more specifics. In Genesis chapter 26, verses 3 and 4, Isaac is given the seed blessing that Abraham received. So it narrows down. Who's Isaac's seed? Well, he has Esau and then Jacob. Next generation, Genesis chapter 28, verses 3 and 4, Jacob receives the seed blessing that through his seed all nations of the earth will be blessed. The world will be blessed in him. Well, Jacob's name changed to who? Israel. 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 The man Israel. And anybody who comes biologically from the man Israel, as we know, is going to be an Israelite and is going to make up the nation of Israel. Again, 
I'm boiling it down, a brief run-through for Genesis, so that you can see, as we're going to study these feasts, we want to know, well, why are these feasts important and why are these people important? Well, that, that's exactly why we're structurally, we're going from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, names changed Israel, and then we get the nation of Israel. Who will celebrate these feasts? Well, towards the end of the book of Genesis, in chapter 49, verses 1 and 28, we see that the sons of Israel, he had 12 sons, the sons of Israel received the same blessing. Um, some of them get uh, unique blessings, specifically. Um, but there's tribes, there's 12 sons of Israel, and there, there, there's tribes of Israel. Levi, which was one of the 12 tribes, one of the 12 sons, inherits what? The priesthood. The priesthood. Judah later receives what? The kingship. Again, the asterisk that I put underneath it. I'm going to keep going back to this because I'm drilling a point. Remember that all these descendants are inferior to who? They're less than who? The, the, the stature of Melchizedek. Right? So the Levitical priesthood is going to be less uh, in stature, uh, in hierarchy, than the Melchizedekian priesthood. Well, we're going to pick up in Exodus. That brings us through Genesis. So now we know who these people are, why they're important, what they received. And, uh, and that's going to that's take us up into the book of Exodus with Moses and the children of Israel, a blessed and chosen nation. A quick word about Israel on the second page, the top of the second page, a quick word about Israel's feast and the Messiah's fulfillment. Jesus of Nazareth feast fulfillment and his given authority to do so. Remember, going back to Genesis chapter 14, when we close to when we started, that scene with Abraham and Melchizedek, Levi and his sons were later, as we said, were later given the Levitical priesthood, which comes from Israel, so less than Melchizedek. And then in Psalm 110 verse 4, God makes a divine decree announcing that the Messiah would have a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. That's amazing. And, and, and without Psalm 110, I mean, there's plenty more to support uh, Christ's authority, but I just love that Psalm 110 verse 4. I love that that's there. A thousand years in advance, God declares an oath that the Messiah would have a future priesthood greater than Levi's like Melchizedek. So the question that I pose, which is where we're going to get into some, some interesting stuff in our study tonight, is if the priests of Israel are involved in the law and the feast, and they are, the feasts were given in Leviticus 23, that's in the law, then how is the Messiah going to be involved and how much greater is his involvement? How much greater is his involvement? The Hebrew prophet uh, Hosea, in chapter 12, verse 10, I didn't write it out here, but I describe it, and you can write, jot this down and go back to it later as well as you keep your hand out. Uh, it's seen that God uses foreshadowing and symbolic pictures and repetitive patterns to create anticipation. And we have this throughout the Old Testament leading into 
the New Testament to the identity and work of Jesus Christ. So, again, more specifically, how will Jesus be involved? Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, as I have it printed out on on your handout, it says verbatim, Think not, this is the words of Jesus Christ, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Again, in parentheses, I remind you, the feasts of Israel are part of the law. In Leviticus 23, it's found. So, again, if, if all the law will be fulfilled, as Jesus said he would, then he has to, it's implied that he will fulfill all the feast. And that is going to lead us to where we're going to look at that when we go back to, to, to Leviticus, but not yet. I have two more, two more important verses uh, concerning Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says, Search the scriptures, that's the law and the prophets, there was new, no New Testament at the time, for in them, the scriptures, ye think ye have eternal life. And they, the scriptures, are they which testify of me. It's brilliant. Luke chapter 24, verse 27, following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, the, Luke says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, it's the entire entirety of the, New Te- of the Old Testament, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Witness after witness after witness. We could keep going with verses after verses. So, with your Bibles, let's turn to to uh, excuse me, to Leviticus chapter 23. We'll get into these feasts. Let's let's unwrap this. This this is where it gets real exciting. <laughs> yeah, you getting hungry? <laughs> me too. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 23. And we're going to start at verse 2. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 2 says, Speak unto the children of Israel. This is God speaking to Moses. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, Concerning the feast of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. So that's our introduction. So we're going to get into the first uh, feast that I'll discuss is Passover. Passover, which typically happens in March, March to April area. Passover, we'll see this in verse 5. In the 14th day of the first month at even, that's evening, is the Lord's Passover. Well, you might say, well, that sounds great, but... What is Passover? <laughs> well, I'm going to turn your attention, flip back to the uh, left, and let's go to Exodus 12. Let's look at, let's, let's look at what Passover is, because if, we if we're going to investigate and, and study how these feasts point to Jesus Christ, we need to understand what the feasts are about. That's fair. So Exodus chapter 12, if you found your place there, look at verse 3. 
I'll read it verbatim. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel. That's the whole nation. Saying, in the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb. According to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. So we know one thing. A lamb is involved. There's A lamb is involved. Let's continue in verse 6. A couple lines down. Let's go to verse 6. Let's get more information. And ye shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Parentheses, you'll see that I put the summary. That is the lamb is slain. There is a slain lamb for Passover. Why? Why? Verse 12. Chapter 12, verse 12. It says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite, that's kill, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, and I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So the Israelites, when they were in the land of Egypt, uh, I guess the idolatry of the Egyptians at the time was rubbing off on the children of Israel, and they were engaged in idolatry, worshiping false gods, and that is the main sin here that God's going to execute judgment against. So that was, that was their sin. Verse 13 says, And the blood, I'd underline blood, shall be to you a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where they get the term Passover. So, in uh, the asterisk there at the bottom of the page, I did a summary wrap-up of that, of that section of Scripture, and it comes down to, in simple terms, Israel was redeemed from sin, namely idolatry, by the Lamb's blood. That made me think of something. In the New Testament, Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. They were sinning, idolatry, take a lamb, kill it, put the blood on the doorpost, for the wages of sin is death, something has to die. That's, that was the, the adequate uh, judgment, was, was, was death. And then that also brings to mind, in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. It's, Without shedding of blood is no forgiveness or remission of sins. See, it all played out throughout the Exodus. Well, once in the land, the Aaronic, or I'll say the Levitical priests, just so not to confuse anyone, because I've been using the term Levi, Levitical, uh, they're appointed to perform, to perform the service of the Passover in remembrance of the events of Exodus 12, when they were commanded to do it for the first place. And the purpose was to look forward to a greater fulfillment that would come. Uh, in parentheses, I did, uh, I did note Second Chronicles 35. I mean, throughout Leviticus, they're, they're told to what to do, but just as, as a clear, uh, straightforward thing where they 
the, the Levitical priests specifically were told how, how to do their job, Second Chronicles 35. So, you see, they take the lamb on the 10th day of the month. 14th day, they, need, they have to kill it and sacrifice it. So there's a, there's a time, there's an order of events, there's a time schedule through, the, through this month that they're supposed to do this activity. Just as the feasts are on schedule, Jesus has a schedule. We see this throughout his ministry. John chapter 7, my time, there's a phrase, my time. So, and I, I, I think it's important to note, by no coincidence, that Jesus of Nazareth dies on Passover. In fact, his last supper event was a Passover cedar meal celebrating the Passover. And then, in fact, Jesus assigns symbolism to the Passover elements to himself. And we'll see that shortly as we get into more detail and unpack it. As far as Jesus being the Passover lamb, there's testimony of others throughout Scripture. John the Baptist, before the cross and even before the ministry of Jesus Christ, because John the Baptist uh, introduced, uh, introduced Israel to Jesus, we see uh, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, says, Behold the Lamb of God, talking about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. It's a direct, a direct identification as Jesus is the Lamb of God, as a Passover Lamb. Paul, after the cross, uh, well after the cross, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the second part of that verse says, For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Direct, one-on-one, -on -one, direct. So an asterisk, again, I summarize it from the information we've gathered. He is both the priest and the lamb. Worth noting, we're sa saved by the blood of the lamb from death in both events. That's what was at stake. Of course, in the first, in, 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 in the, the Exodus, uh, the consequence seemed to be a little less. I mean, that was just physical death. But in this case, you don't have your lamb, you're faced with an eternity in hell. Uh, bigger fulfillment, but bigger consequences. Again, Romans uh, 6.23 and Hebrews 9.22 concerning the blood and the, wage, and, and the wages of sin being death. This is the only way. This is God's only method. Uh, it is called grace. And, and just so you can see again, comparing the exodus uh, out of Egypt and the uh, spiritual exodus of Jesus Christ is that the judgment of sin passed over the Israelites and onto the Lamb as it was killed. Well, the judgment of today, in, in the last two days, the judgment of our sin was passed over us and onto Jesus Christ. It's the same idea, it's the same concept, it's the same intent, it's the same planner. Makes me think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 in the New Testament, where the Apostle Paul says, we're not appointed to wrath, at least for the believers, we're not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation. And this is, this is God's view towards all of mankind, is that, that he, he, doesn't want, he doesn't want to bring wrath on us. He doesn't want 
us to be eternally separated from him, but the purpose through Jesus Christ to obtain salvation all along. Well, that, that has to deal with Passover. The next part that we'll get to, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of make it a little brief, is unleavened bread. It's the second feast we'll talk about. So again, going back to this calendar, right? Lamb's taken the 10th day of the month, 14th day it's killed and sacrificed. The 15th of the month, the next day, through the 21st of the month, a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we'll look at that in Leviticus chapter 23. So go back to Leviticus 23. And we'll start that in verse 6, where we left off when we were looking in, verse, in chapter 23. All right, verse 6. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. We'll refer back to Exodus 12. Unleavened bread is eaten with the Passover lamb, and the seven-day bread feast is commanded there in Exodus 12. Later in Exodus 16, Israelites uh, get rescued out of uh, Egypt. They get it, they're wandering 40 years in the desert. They get hungry. Some complaining goes on. Anyway, they, they get some manna. It's bread from heaven. So they're still, and, and, and the way it was set up is for six days, the bread would fall, they'd collect it, they'd, they'd get twice as much on the sixth day, and then on the seventh day was the Sabbath, and they would not go collect, the, collect it. It's the same setup, and they did that throughout the wilderness, and it's the same setup that uh, was given when the feast was commanded back in Exodus 12. In the New Testament, Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, and I'll just read it to you for sake of time, it says, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Symbolically, I, I add, symbolically. It's not really his body, but the bread all along was anticipation of him. That bruised unleavened bread was his body in, in, in symbolism. So again, he is both the bread and the priest. Remember, Melchizedek giving Abraham bread and blessing him in Genesis chapter 14. And then the reminder of Messiah's priesthood in Psalm 110 after the order of Melchizedek. Here's Jesus doing the same thing, dispersing bread. He is the priest. It's exactly what Melchizedek did with Abraham. He's been the bread all along. I have you turn to John, and this is the last portion of Scripture as I wind it down, as we close, but John chapter 6 in the New Testament, I'd like all eyes to go there. John chapter 6, real quick, John chapter 6, meet me at verse 35. John chapter 6, verse 35 in the New Testament. Give you a second to get there. John chapter 6, verse 35, I'll begin to read. It says, and Jesus said unto them, another I am statement, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Verse 36, but I said unto you that ye, ye also have seen me and believe not. 
verse 37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me, I will in, mark this in your Bible if it's not marked, it should be, I will in no wise cast out. Verse 38, for I come down from heaven, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Verse 39, and this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Verse 40, and this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That sounds like a promise to me. And that's the promise that I'm trusting in. I have three points about that. Number one, back in Matthew when he says, in no wise will the law pass till all be fulfilled, it's the same assurance and no wise and seriousness that he has towards not losing the believer in John chapter 6. Number two, no wise, that's, that's the promise that he will, that he will uh, keep us saved and preserve us. That's what I'm, that's, I'm holding him to it. That's where my faith lies. Uh, are you? Is that where your faith lies? We have nothing else but his sacrifice for the wages of sin is death. It's the only acceptable payment. It's the only way. There's no other options. It's, 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 it's yes or no. So my, I put my securities in his hands. It makes me think of John chapter 10, verse 28. There's no plucking from his hand, not of my own power, nobody else's power. The only person I suppose may be able to do it's him, but he said in verse 37 of John chapter 6 that he will in no wise cast me out. So I'm not go- and out of his hand, I'm not going anywhere. That's the security that we have. That's the eternal security that we, we, we can be assured of in Christ, and it's throughout Scripture. I'm just reading what he said. Number three, there's one condition. Believe what is done. One ultimate lamb, one ultimate sacrifice forever. It was 2,000 years ago before we even existed. And this was and is the only acceptable method and source, source for eternal salvation. There had to be a death, there had to be a human, and there had to be a perfect human. Neither me, and it's not you either. So... The only option we have is to trust him for our salvation and to trust him, only him, for the eternal preservation of our salvation. Well, you can close your Bibles. That, that's all the scripture that we're going to look at tonight. And I'll just have you look up here real quick. Let this hand represent you and me. I'm going to let this phone represent sin. I'm going to put it on my hand because we all have it. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's all of us, you and me. That's why the sin's on there. Also, uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. Right? There's this barrier between me and God. Nothing, nothing, nothing that I can do can, can bring me to God. So he, ha- he, he, he has to do it. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says the wages of sin is death. A lot of people are trying to pay money, are trying to do good works, are trying to live the best life that they can, are trying to do all these things of their own accord uh, to assure themselves of their salvation when, as I've said tonight, there's only one way. 
Let that be Jesus Christ, this hand. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came into the world, died on a cross, okay? Died on a cross, paid for all the sin of the world, past, present, and future, all of it. If he didn't pay for all of it, then he didn't pay for anything, and then we'd be going to hell. All of it has to be paid. Not one can be left. Paid for it all in one shot, rose from the dead, says that if we believe that he did it for us, we can have eternal life with him forever. One more time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth, see this exchange, whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And that's how it's been all along. And that's what we should trust and keep our confidence in. Thank you again. It was, again, a pleasure to be able to do this, and thank you.